this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of FE Church, and this is our podcast. Well, it is fully December now, people. Are you ready for Christmas? Five days in, who's already tired of Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is you? Yes, some of you? I love Christmas music. I love everything to do with Christmas, honestly. So I was a little disappointed, just a little, when God sort of steered me away from the typical Christmas series. We, we have done Written in the Stars in the past. We've done Wonder. Last year we did the Christmas Spirit. Such good Christmas series. I encourage you to go back and listen to them. This is not that series. We are going to be diving into the Christmas story a little bit. But I don't know, this year something new. God is teaching us something brand new. I have been studying the names of Jesus lately. His names, the personhood of Jesus Christ. And I've been seeing him in a whole new way because of it. At Christmas time, it can be easy to look at just one aspect of Jesus. Jesus in the manger, the baby Jesus, the the helpless child. Almost like looking at the calf from last week. You know, we talked about the calf in Israel's history, and and we want God to be predictable sometimes. We want him to be something that we take care of and and tell what to do instead of the other way around. I I think a lot of people actually want their Jesus that way. We want to keep Jesus in the manger. It's an easy God to worship, right? He's pure and, and innocent, not really saying tough things and teaching things that take a while to digest and put into practice and teaching me to love people I don't want to love and do things I don't want to do, right? Baby Jesus doesn't do any of that. Baby in a manger doesn't do any of that. He, he just requires belief. Belief. Have you watched any Christmas movies yet this year? Anybody? It, it always strikes me. All the Christmas movies, all of them, I've yet to find one that doesn't teach this. All of them, they're teaching us to just believe. It's the magic of belief and that belief is enough. My question is, is it? Is belief enough? It might be for manger Jesus, baby Jesus. I'm not sure it is for the rest of the story. And we like the kind of little pretend God that visits us once a year with presents and only asks for non-definitive goodness in return. I know I'm about to step on some toes here, so. We like that God. He only requires a few things once a year. Non-definitive goodness, goodness that we get to define. Thank you, guy. Goodness that makes us feel good. That's fun. That's easy. It makes us feel good. I'm convinced some people only worship baby Jesus and leave the rest at midnight mass. But is that the whole story? Throughout this series, instead of just looking at just the faith of Mary and Joseph and the generosity of the wise men and the, and the simple faith of the shepherds, it, honestly, it's pure, it's magical, it's the wonder of it all. We're going to look at the whole picture, beginning, end, middle, all of it. Did you actually know that most eschatologists, which is a fancy word for people who study the end times, most eschatologists believe that it is impossible to understand the prophecies in the book of Revelation without understanding the book of Genesis first. 
right? That, in fact, some of them say the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they cover the law, uh, the beginning of Israel, all of that set up, and the beginning of time itself. It's impossible, they believe, to understand the end without understanding the beginning. The Bible interprets the Bible. You can't just pluck one verse out of context and build a theology around it, which is another big religious word that just means a belief system that we use to live by, a system of belief. You can't just pluck one verse and say, this is my theology now. There are 66 books, rich and full And they interpret each other. You have to take a step back and look at the whole of Scripture. A good Bible study teacher, Bible teacher, will teach you not just to get down into the nitty-gritty of each individual word meanings, you know, like specifics about one verse or one word. It sounds really smart and intellectual to say the, the Greek, the root of the Greek word, this and whatever, it means this. But they will also, and it's both, pull back and help you see how it fits into the larger scriptures, the beautiful tapestry that is scripture as a whole. I love the word, love the word. It is beautiful. With one scripture, you you can trace like like a a thread, a beautiful tapestry, one concept, one idea. It's amazing how far it goes and how wide, but you can also take a step back and look at how it fits into the beautiful overall picture of the piece and how deep it goes. How beautifully the artist weaved it in, that it's not a piece of art unto itself, but that it fits into a much larger picture. So if you take one verse and the meaning of it doesn't seem to line up with the rest of scripture, then you probably need to adjust your interpretation of it, right? This is what I think a lot of people do with prophecies in the book of Revelation, for example. See only a piece of it. And they totally disregard the beginnings. (laughs) The beginnings are important. The middle is important. Seeing the whole story in context is important. I think people also do this with the birth of Jesus. Like the baby in the manger, Jesus. The one who came to bring peace and hope. The one who came to free the captives and minister to the poor. The one born in humble circumstances. So we're going to do some zooming out and zooming in throughout this series. We're going to look at the beginnings of things and the ends of things. We're going to look at the personhood of Jesus, examine his names. We're we're also going to spend some time on the Christmas story. And definitely on Christmas Eve, we're going to read the whole Christmas story. Are you all coming to Christmas Eve, by the way? It is one of my favorite traditions of the whole year. It's one of my favorite services of the whole year. My family has made it an important tradition in my family since I was five years old and my dad started this church. Like it's always been something in my life that has been important. We all got dressed up on Christmas Eve and it was a whole day production and people brought us popcorn tins. I don't know why exactly I remember that detail, but that was like the go-to pastor gift back then or something. We got so many popcorn tins and as a PK, pastor's kid, I was here for it. Okay, pop. I was all about the and then the pears in the little boxes. I don't know what they're called. The apples in the boxes. Pastor gifts, man. I was a PK. I was here for it. But they they're so magical. Christmas Eve, right? We can live in that magic a little bit. Live in the the mystery of the gospel. Live in, in what God did for us and how it's so important. We love each other extra on Christmas. We have hot cocoa, and we light our candles, and we take communion. 
the best services of the whole year. And you're, you're going to see a lot this month of that. You're going to see a lot this month of a baby in a manger. You're going to see Jesus as a pure, helpless baby that we have to take care of, a baby with possibility and wonder and opportunity ahead of him, a baby that needs you to take care of him. There's nothing wrong with zooming in on this particular aspect of Jesus' story and enjoying the magic of it all at Christmas time. Christmas is magical. It's miraculous, really. I'm using the word magical like romantic, quixotic, um, beautiful, right? That heaven would come down, that purity would mix with impurity, that perfection would choose to live with imperfection. It's unthinkable. It's amazing. Our God is amazing. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't say a baby. He didn't stay in that manger. He didn't only preach peace, but also truth. He didn't only bring grace, but also consequence. He didn't preach that your truth is the truth and my truth is truth. No, he is the truth. He is the standard. There is a standard and you don't meet it. I have people ask me things like this all the time. I just don't feel good enough to pray. I don't feel good enough to, to worship, to be in church, to whatever. Here's the answer. Truly, this is the honest only answer to that. You're not good enough. You're not. You will never be good enough. I'm not good enough. We will never be good enough because Jesus is the standard. He started off as God, came down to be human willingly, and died for us messy, imperfect, selfish, sinful people. He did that. And because of him, we are now made good enough. Do you see the difference? Before you understand that you will never be good enough in and of yourself, you can never accept that the good news is that Jesus made you good enough. That is what we are thankful for, that he offered himself for you. A weak God couldn't do that. A weak God wouldn't do that. People worship all kinds of things, all kinds of gods in this world, but Jesus is unique. Other gods seem to vie for power. They're out for themselves. They're they're gathering worshipers for power's sake. Even our flimsy gods today, by the way. I like the god of entertainment. Government. Sex and satisfaction. The, The god of money. They're all out for themselves. A weak God out for themselves. Jesus wasn't like that. Jesus chose to humble himself. He laid down his own preferences, his own titles, his own godhood. He came as a baby to experience all that humanity had to offer. He is unique. And just to prove this, I have eight more reasons why he is unique. Are you ready? He's alive. If I didn't have any more, that one would be enough. Jesus is alive. He rose. No other religion on planet Earth can make this claim about their leaders. He rose. Of his own power, he is alive. Number two, he is fully divine and fully human. Again, no other religious leader on planet Earth can make that claim that he was fully divine and fully human. Number three, there are over 300 prophecies about him fulfilled. I've heard the number closer to 400 in some cases. Fulfilled prophecy, the statistical chances of that happening, 
They're off the charts. It doesn't just happen. Those prophecies were delivered over hundreds of years by so many different people. And they all came true in the life of Jesus. It just doesn't happen. Number four, he performed many, many miracles. At least 35 specific ones are recorded in the Gospels, but there were hundreds more not specifically recorded. All of the Gospel writers say that. He was a miracle worker. He also had power over nature. Walking on water, commanding the storm, the fishes and the loaves. No other religious leader can make that claim. Number six, his teachings. His teachings are unique on planet Earth. They're, They're... not only challenging, but they're awesome. And by that, I mean they fill the listener with wonder. Make you think. They include parable and prophecy and poetry. They're beautiful and unique on planet Earth. Number seven, they connected him. Those teachings connected him to people. With leaders, teachers of religious law, with with. Leaders and also with common everyday people. He had the ability to speak the language of both. His teachings did that. Number eight, his impact. We've talked about this many times lately, but the impact of one single son of a carpenter who only lived to his 30s and ministered publicly for only three years, his impact has been astronomical on planet Earth. Astronomical. Over 2 billion people around the world claim to follow him. He's changed the world, even with things like hospitals and healthcare, and caring for the poor. Ancient people didn't care about these things. They didn't look out for each other. We do now because of Jesus. He changed the world. Jesus and his followers did this. They created hospitals. The hospitals first started as additions to churches. Right? They... they Change the way we look at children because of him too. Let the little children come to me, Jesus said, and don't stop them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. These were radical teachings at the time, and it changed the world. We now have schools and education because of Jesus. We have orphanages, foster care. We're taking care of each other better today, 2,000 years later, because of Jesus. He taught us to look at people with compassion, with humility. These things are easily traceable in history to one man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Alpha and Omega, the bread of life, the light of the world, the morning star, the Prince of Peace, the Messiah, the hope of the world, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah. These are his names, and there are many more. It's who he is, not was, who he is. And it is easy to see the wonder of it all. It's quixotic, romantic, it's beautiful, right? But Jesus isn't a baby in a manger anymore. He's not a broken man on the cross. He didn't stay in the grave. Anybody know this song? And he's not staying in heaven forever. No? Missy Edwards, 2007. If you know what I'm talking about, you have been a Christian for 15 years. Congratulations. Nobody knows this song? I can feel the rhythm of the lion of the tribe of Judah. No? Nothing? Okay. Look it up. It's a good song. Thank you. Here's the thing. (laughs) Jesus' story isn't done yet. It's not done yet. 
I don't know why that hit me this week, but it's not done yet. We talk about all these things as if they're just in the past. They're just 2,000 years ago, but his story is still being written. We are in the dot, dot, dot phase. We are in the church building, world changing phase. The world is still changing and morphing, good and bad. Christians like to forget the good sometimes. We focus on all the ways the world is going to hell in a handbasket. It's still changing for the good, too, because of Jesus. The gospel is spreading around the world like wildfire. We live in a part of the world that it might be rapidly becoming post-Christian, but the world is still changing. God is still building his church. Jesus is still breathing his spirit upon us. He is not in a manger anymore. He is spending his time now putting us in the game. We're not on the sidelines. We're not just serving, watching, listening, and learning from the sidelines while he does all the work. We're doing all of those things, serving, watching, listening, learning, but in the game while ministering to others. That's the true Christmas spirit. Ministering to others, laying down your life for each other just as Jesus did. How do you see him? How do you view Jesus of Nazareth? It's an important question to a believer. How do you see Jesus? Who is he to you? We have gone around Bible study circles, home group circles. We have asked this question, who is Jesus to you? And I always find answers very interesting. You can tell so much about a person's relationship with God by the way they answer that one question. Who is Jesus to you? How do you see him? I've gotten answers from teenagers that are like that magical guy in a book, right? Uh, (laughs) Don't know how to answer that exactly. You're right, I guess. Some people say, you know, he's my best friend. Some people say he's my boss, right? He's my teacher, my leader. Some people say he's my savior. Saved me from addiction, from something, right? He's He's a king. He died on the cross for me. He's my healer. But I think as we mature and grow in Christ, those things don't change. They just become more. We, we almost collect them as we, go, as we grow in, in our relationship with him. Sometimes he is my friend. Sometimes he's my disciplinarian. And sometimes he's my boss. Sometimes he's my comforter. Further you get in your walk with God, the more roles Jesus can and will play in your life. It's the ones who struggle to answer that question. You know, I, um, I don't know. He's my everything. All right, the ones who say, I, I, I can't answer that in one sentence. He's, he's everything. And then they go on to talk about the different roles that Jesus has played in their life in the past. Those are the ones you want to look out for. Those are the ones with a dangerous relationship with Jesus dangerous to the enemy, right? They have something real going on with Jesus because they've seen a thing or two. I ain't like, farmers, we can cover, I forget how it goes. We've seen a thing or two because they have, right? This is the relationship with Jesus that has seen a thing or two. They've walked through some stuff with Jesus. That's some hard-won faith right there seen a thing or two. They can tell you about a thing or two. We're going we're gonna to jump into the Christmas story a little bit today because I want to demonstrate some of this to you. I want to read you the story of the wise men. 
Because as I was studying this this week, I realized they saw Jesus as so much more than a baby. They saw him as so much more than the people around them, the people that were supposed to know the Messiah and all the prophecies about him. They saw him as more. The way that they saw Jesus was unique at the time, and I want to demonstrate this to you today. So we're going to Matthew 2, starting at verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the, time, during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. First of all, I think it's pretty crazy that the entire nation of Israel was looking for the Messiah, but these guys were the only one actually looking for him. They showed up in town saying, where's the newborn king of the Jews? And everybody's like, oh, what are you talking about? Nobody else was looking. Not truly. They said they were. They weren't. Right? And, and these guys come into town and they assume that everyone will see him the same way that they do. Assuming that everyone will see Jesus the same way that you do is a mistake. Right? They won't. That's what the Bible talks about, throwing your pearls before swine. They won't. In fact, when they're not looking for him, when people aren't looking for Jesus, they can sometimes see him more like King Herod saw him, which we're about to see in a minute. This is why our behavior as believers is often more impactful than our words. Not always. Sometimes you have to use your words, but often. Right? If we can make them wonder about how we love each other, wonder about how we forgive what we shouldn't, forgive in their mindsets, wonder about how we love those who can't give back to us, they may start to seek him on their own for good reasons. When confronted with him, before they're ready, they often feel threatened. I'll show you what I mean in verse 3. King Herod was deeply disturbed. Remember, all they had done at this point is ask, where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we've come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this as was everyone in Jerusalem. It's one of those little pieces. It's easy to miss. As was everyone in Jerusalem. This was not just a King Herod problem. We like to vilify him in the Christmas story. How dare he, that evil man. But it wasn't him that was the exception. The entire nation of Israel, at least the city of Jerusalem, was deeply disturbed at hearing that the Messiah might be in town. The Magi were the only ones, these wise men were the only ones looking for him correctly. Blows my mind. It blows my mind because of all of the teachers of religious law, the experts in religious law, the people that knew all almost 400 prophecies about the Messiah. They knew them by heart, y'all. And they still missed him. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? So he didn't even know, okay? But he asked the people that did. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they knew. For this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you, who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. 
After this interview, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. Not deeply disturbed like everyone else in the city. Filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Of course, we know what Herod did later, because he couldn't find out exactly who Jesus was. He killed all the babies at the time. These wise men, they saw him as a king. They saw him as someone to serve, not someone to serve them. That's what hit me this week. That's the difference. That's the missing piece. That is, is the entire difference between the wise men and the rest of Jerusalem at the time. It, it always bugged me that the, the leading priests and teachers of religious law, that they knew all of the prophecies about the coming Messiah, but when he was right in front of them, they missed him. It's no different even in the birth story. <laughs> Jesus hasn't been on planet Earth like two months yet, and this is already true, Right? It was right in front of them, and they missed him. It bothers me because I know Jesus is coming back someday too, right? His story is not done yet. And I'm about half afraid I'm going to miss him as well. I do believe that a lot of people who spend their time studying end times teaching will miss them for this very reason. Focus on the wrong details. I'm not saying all of them, but some of them focus on the wrong details, the selfish details. They focus on storing up stockpiles for themselves rather than seeing more people come to know him. There's not one prophecy in the book of Revelation that changes our mission and job today. Do you know what that mission is? The only thing we can bring to heaven with us? More people. That's the mission. See more people come to know Jesus. It doesn't change whether you know when he's coming back or not. And by the way, nobody does. So if they claim to, ignore it. Just a tip. But the wise men didn't miss him. They didn't miss him. They were the only ones that didn't miss him. In fact, they knew about him before anyone else. They didn't get a birth announcement or a text update or a Twitter blast, right? They were seeking God in the stars, They were asking God for that information, not because they wanted to be served, but because they wanted to serve. I now think that that's the whole difference between the Pharisees, the teachers of religious law, the experts, and the wise men. The Pharisees believed that the Messiah would come back and serve them, free them, liberate them, set up a kingdom for them, put them in power. And the wise men just wanted to come and serve him. We know from Matthew 2 that they sought him out. They worshipped him and gave him costly gifts so that his parents could raise him well. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they didn't sell him out to the enemy. As we know that later, the Pharisees did. The Pharisees and leading priests, the teachers of religious law, they literally did the opposite of all those things. They wanted the Messiah to come and serve them. They expected that he would come to them expected their kingdom and wealth and power to prosper because of him. And they expected the Messiah to almost worship them, praise them, tell them what a good job they were doing. They literally believed that as soon as everyone was perfect like they were, that's when the Messiah would come. That's why they looked down their noses at everybody else. 
And they eventually sold him out to the enemy. The wise men didn't do any of that. The Jews, at the time of Jesus, forgot why God chose them. I think they began to believe that God chose them because of them. When in fact, God chose them because of him. God chose them to be a beacon to the world. Not to rule over the world, but to overflow their blessings onto the world. He wanted them to be a light, be a city on a hill. Bringing all people to him. The Jews forgot the beginning. They saw Jesus as something to serve them, and therefore they couldn't see the end. They forgot the beginning. I called this series the Lion of Judah because of that connotation of that specific name of Jesus. There are lots of names of Jesus, over 50 in the word, actually. I've already named a few of them. And around Christmas time, we usually talk about him being Emmanuel, God with us, right? Uh, We talk about him being the hope of the world, the prince of peace, a wonderful counselor, a baby in a manger, and he is all of those things. But the truth is layered. A lie is usually very shallow. You can see past it pretty quickly. Truth is layered. you got to dig for truth in the word. It's part of what I love about the word, that it can mean so much more. It's a deeper meaning than just surface level. He is not just any of those things. He is all of them. That is the truth. And the truth is that another one of his titles is also the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah is not only about the beginning. In fact, it's about the end. In the book of Revelation, chapter 5, the Lion of Judah is the only one worthy to open a scroll. He's described as a lion and in the same chapter as a lamb. He is both a lamb offered for the slaughter and the lion of Judah. This title also harkens back to the beginning, though. See, when God first chose the nation of Israel, they weren't a nation yet. It began, all of it began as a promise to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. And that promise followed Abraham's son, Isaac. And from there, his son, Jacob, Jacob's sons and grandsons eventually became the tribes of Judah that we know today. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Twelve tribes of Judah. But of them all, Judah eventually became the strongest, most powerful, and most important tribe. Not only did it produce great kings like David and Solomon, they both came from the tribe of Judah, but also the Messiah himself was prophesied to come from the tribe of Judah. In fact, it really is... Today, the only remaining tribe of Israel, the tribe of Judah, took a lot of research this week (laughs) to figure that out. Uh, During the Assyrian conquest in 721 BC, 700 years before Christ, the 10 northern tribes of Israel were actually carted off as slaves uh, in Assyria and eventually assimilated into other nations. They're actually called today the 10 lost tribes of Israel. There was only Benjamin and Judah left. The tribe of Benjamin assimilated easily into the tribe of Judah because it was by far the most powerful, even at the time. And therefore, Judah is Israel today. All of Israel's history from that time on is Judah's history. Each tribe had its own symbol, though. The tribe of Judah symbol, I wonder if you can guess. It was a lion. A lion. Lions are the king of the jungle. Apex predator at the top of the food chain, right? They don't have any enemies that can match them. They keep 
the rest of the ecosystem functioning properly. A lion, who would become the most powerful tribe. A lion who knows his strength, so he doesn't need to use it on everything. Did you know lions aren't actually that aggressive in the wild? They lie around wherever they want because they can, right? They don't actually attack unless they're threatened or or hungry, and they aren't threatened very often. They only use their strength when they need to. The lion of Judah is Jesus. He is a lion, and he is a lamb. See, each tribe had a flag that they would carry to identify themselves. And I promise this is a long story, but I'm going somewhere with this. Each had a flag to identify themselves. It was a rallying method, right? You followed your tribe, your flag, your symbol, your banner into battle, into the promised land, into prosperity, and sometimes into defeat, right? The other tribes of Israel, some of them were led into defeat. They got involved with idolatry. They started compromising with the nations around them. They started worshiping other gods. They got into some sexual immorality, selfishness, fear. And so they were also led into slavery, into defeat, into obscurity, and ultimately they were no more. But the tribe of Judah followed the lion, the king This tribe produced great leaders who were empowered with the Holy Spirit, like David and Solomon, and ultimately, Jesus Christ. They're the tribe that produced the believers that we all learn from today. They followed him for a long time. They followed him until the actual lion was right in front of them. See, what I think happened was, the tribe of Judah began to see themselves as the lion began to see themselves as the lion. They wanted the power to rule the world. (laughs) The king, the, the lion of Judah, was never actually them, though. It's Jesus. It has always been Jesus, and always will be Jesus. Our banner, our flag, our king, our leader, our boss, is also our friend, our comforter, our provider. The Lion of Judah is only a threat when we begin to put him in the wrong place. When we see him as something he isn't. He wants the best for you. Why couldn't Herod see that? Why couldn't Herod, a Jew himself, why couldn't he see that the Messiah coming was a good thing? My pride had blinded him. Power had blinded him. And it's the same reasons why we can't see it today. Pride blinds us. Power blinds us. We put ourselves, we put self over everything. And it's my way or the highway, Jesus. You have to answer my requests, Jesus, in exactly the way that I want, when I want. Or I'm walking away. Right? We put ourselves over everything. We put ourselves on the banner, the flag that we follow into battle. He's not the lion on our banner at all. Jesus is a savior to worship. He's a king to serve. He is the main character of this story. Not you. Not me. How do you see him? How do you see him? Can you trust him? For me... 
remembering that he's not only a baby in a manger, a lamb that was slaughtered, but he's also the lion of Judah. It reminds me who he is, that he can be fierce. He is powerful. His, his sacrifice, his love wasn't weak, strong. It's that righteous rebellion stirring back up in me again. It's remembering who he is that helps me remember I don't have to submit to the plans of the enemy anymore. I have the lion behind me. I can fight them because I have the lion behind me. Right? It is not me out there fighting the enemy, just trying to be better and do better. It is the lion of Judah within me fighting the enemy. I can say, no, I'm not going to participate in those lies anymore. I'm not going to be scared anymore. I'm not going to be fearful. I've got the lion of Judah on my side. Come at me, bro. Right? I don't have to believe the lies, the fears, the doubts. I don't have to look out for me all the time. Because he does. He is my king. He is to be served. I get to wake up in the morning and say, God, what do you have for me to do today? What should my priority be today? You said that, not me. Not coming to his with a laundry list of, God, I need this, this, and this done. If you could do this, that would really be great. Thanks, bye. God, who are you? Really? What can I learn about you today? Your character. What you do for us. Who you are. How can I be more like that? What do you have for me today? You set my agenda. You are the king. The lion of Judah, and I'm going to serve you. When we see him correctly, we put him in his rightful place in our lives. We'll begin to see things change. The Bible says, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. You will have power. You'll have, you know, fame. You'll have, God wants those things for you. He wants to make your name great. He does. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Put him on the throne of your life. Put him first. Everything else will work out. The way he intends, not always the way you intend. The best way. Can you trust him with that? Seeing him as the Lion of Judah helps me trust him with that. There is a great mystery in the gospel. It is magical and wonderful and beautiful. We also have the ending. We know the end. God didn't just give us the beginning and the middle. Give us the end too. Jesus' story is still being written. We get to be part of that. We get to serve him, be on mission with him. His story is still being written. Next week, our very own missionary, Mission SOS missionary, Jeremiah, will be back with us. And we're going to talk about not only how to see Jesus, but how he sees us. Jesus spent most of his time after resurrection. We do see portions of his ministry after resurrection. Spent most of that time commissioning the disciples. Not haggling with them about who was the greatest disciple. Or who denied him while he was hanging on the cross or who didn't. Where they all were a week ago when I needed you. He didn't say any of that. He wasn't out looking for power or or storming the gates of the Roman Empire. He wanted to take spiritual ground, not physical ground. 
And to do that, he needed them. Them. And I often wonder why God chooses to use us. Me. I'm not perfect. I'm not worthy. And I come to God with this stuff sometimes. Like, God, how? How? <laughs> how do I do this? I, I can't do this on my own. And every time God says, why would you think you're supposed to? Why would you think you're supposed to? I'm here with you. But this is part of my beautiful plan that's been thousands of years in the making. I want to use you. If it could have been any other way, it wouldn't be perfect. And God is a perfect God, a purposeful God, a productive God. When he does something, he's doing something. It's a bigger picture. So when he commissions me, he's doing something. And I just have to trust him with that. Do the job to the best of my ability and trust him with the rest. To reach the world, he needs us. He needs you. Jesus didn't just come for you. He's coming again for more. How do you see him? How do you see him? Father God, thank you for sending your son. Thank you that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us, that you are not just a faraway, aloof God in the heavens, that you are involved in our everyday lives, that you are with us, that you want to be with us, not just for us, but with us. Thank you for the message of Christmas. You sent your son. Thank you for what we celebrate in this time. God, help us never forget it. But also, God, help us remember the story is not over yet. We have a part to play in it. Help us keep Jesus as the king of our lives, the boss. Help us put him first above everything else, above every selfish desire, every excuse that I have, every fear, every lust, every prideful thought, every greedy thought. God, help us put Jesus first. That even in this messy, sinful, selfish world, we would be like a, a light in the darkness, a beacon of hope for the rest of the world. Help us remember we have a job to do here. We can only do it when fully submitted to the Lion of Judah. With heads bowed and eyes still closed. Maybe today some of you are saying, I've never submitted my life to the Lion of Judah. I've never submitted my life to Jesus. Never actually made him the Lord of my life. And maybe I've believed for a while. Believed that it, it happened, that Jesus was a baby in a manger 2,000 years ago. Maybe, maybe there was some belief there, but I've never made him Lord of my life, the boss of my life. I, I've never fully surrendered to him, let him tell me what to do. I want to do that today. I want to say I'm in today. If that's you and you're in the room, would you just raise your hand up right where you are? If you're watching online, you can text Simon in the comments. I'd love to help you with that. But just raise your hand right up in the room if you're here. 
I want to submit my life to Jesus. I want to give him my life, not just belief anymore, but being fully surrendered to who he is. I know this is a tough ask, right? Not just asking for you to put your faith, your, your belief in him. Faith is actually belief in action. Putting our faith in him requires action, requires us to do something to change some things, but not because God is asking you to change before you can come to him. Jesus has already come before you changed. We change because we have a job to do. We change because he loved us so much, even in our sin. He doesn't leave us there. He wants better for you. I know I'm hanging here just a minute, but I feel like there's somebody else in the room on the edge. Just raise your hand right up if you want to give your life to Jesus, truly. I want to make him the boss of my life. For the rest of us, maybe he's the boss of like 80%. 90% maybe. There's still a thing or two right? It's almost always a thing or two. The Holy Spirit leads us on these beautiful journeys where we come across things that we need to work on over time. It's called the process of sanctification, if you want the big churchy word for it, but he leads us, he guides us, he directs us. So maybe today as you're sitting there thinking, is he truly the boss of my life? How do I see Jesus? Maybe something comes to mind. Something in your life that's not quite submitted yet. This could be an addiction, a fear. It's causing some behaviors you don't like in your life, an anxiousness. It could be a greediness. It could be a a lying. It could be a prideful issue. It could be a lust issue. If you're honest with yourself, there's something you still haven't given to him. Maybe it's just unforgiveness anger. Holding on to it because you feel like you're owed it. If you let it go, that person's off the hook. Thing is, forgiveness is given, not earned. Jesus came to forgive you. He forgave you. What right do you have to hold on to anything else? Give it to Jesus. I'm not going to ask for hands raised or running to the altar or standing or any of that. I just want you to sit with it a little bit. Sit with it a little bit. Because when we truly submit our lives to Jesus, there is immediately a rebellion that wells up. There's a, a stubbornness that wants to push against that decision. There's excuses. We pile all kinds of excuses onto why I can't give Jesus this. I I can't possibly tithe 10%. I have all this other stuff going on. I can't possibly give up this addiction. How would I get any fulfillment? I I can't possibly forgive this person. We have so many excuses. There, There will be immediately a rebellion against that decision. I just want to give you a little bit of space fully come after those excuses. Swipe them away. 
get down to the nitty gritty, what's under those excuses? Deal with it today. Give it to Jesus today. Bring yourself to just start the process today. Say the words to Jesus. Close your eyes. Drown out the room. It's just you and him. Bring yourself to say it. Submit it to Jesus. He is worthy of being our leader. He can handle it. He's got broad shoulders. He can handle all our stuff. He can be our banner we follow into battle. The Lion of Judah is capable. He's got this. Let him have it. Father, today we just fully submit. Fully submit ourselves to you. Be the boss of our lives, truly. Direct us. Guide us. Let us put all excuses away. And just focus on who you are. That help us to truly seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and let you handle the rest. Thank you and praise you in Jesus' mighty, precious, powerful name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I am in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links.